Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. Today I want to focus on the Word of God and preach God's Word to you as God's laid it on my heart. Would you take your Bible and find the book of Matthew chapter 16. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 16. And we'll be focusing in just a moment on verses 18 and 19. Matthew chapter 16 verses 18 and 19. Imagine, friends, a land far away, an American embassy that stands as a safety, as a symbol of safety and protection and the rule of American law. Though physically it's located in a foreign land, that embassy embodies the slice of America that we enjoy here in the the United States. Those embassies are sovereign territories ruled by American law, belonging not to the country in which it is situated, not to the country in which it resides, but to the country it represents, the United States. If you've ever traveled, you know that occasionally you may find yourself in a, in a difficult situation, particularly if you're traveling overseas and uh, in the Middle East and those areas. If you ever find yourself in trouble uh, crossing the, the, the boundary line of an embassy, an American embassy, as a citizen of the United States provides refuge for you, a, a place where the laws of America govern, shielding you from the laws of a foreign land. Now for a moment, let's turn our gaze upon a much grander embassy. It was one that was established by God Himself. Within the tapestry of human history, it's the embassy called the church. The church is God's embassy in a foreign territory that we call the world. And just as American embassies carry the values and the authority of the United States to distant lands, the church bears the divine mandate to bring the values and the principles of heaven into a foreign country, this world. The whole point of the church is to represent heaven in history and to draw uh, 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 eternity into time. The Scripture resoundingly reminds us that our true citizenship is in heaven. In fact, as part of the church, we are called the ambassadors for Christ in the work that we do in this transitory world. In Matthew chapter 16, we find the first mention of the word church in the Bible. It's uttered first by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in this pivotal passage, the understanding of the church is established, revealing the divine origin and inherent significance of the church that we're a part of. We're told in verse number 13 that Jesus has gathered His uh, intimate three, uh, those disciples there uh, in Caesarea Philippi. There at the base of Mount Hermon, before he goes to the Mount of Transfiguration with his intimate three, he begins to question his disciples and ask some questions. The place of that that meeting is significant in the fact that he's taken them approximately 10 to 20 miles to the north of Capernaum where he had been ministering. It's north of the Sea of Galilee. 
It was the border between the Jewish and the Gentile territory. In fact, Caesarea Philippi was the, the headquarters of sorts for paganism in that land. It was believed to be the place of the, the birthplace of the, the god Pan in Greek, Greek mythology. There was a location, the grotto of Caesarea Philippi. You would look into this open cave. You can still see it today. I was just there about five weeks ago. And in that grotto, they would take living babies and cast them into this particular uh, grotto and offer them to the God of nature, uh, 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 taking the life of an innocent in the honor of nature. And in that moment, Jesus begins to question his disciples. And he asks the question, who do men say that I am? One raised his hand and said, well, some say uh, you're Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. No, 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 no. Another says, no, that's not who they, they say. Some, some say you're Elijah, the, the, the prophet that comes with power. Uh, someone else raised their hand and said, no, some say you're John the Baptist. And in that moment, Jesus turns the question from what do those on the outside say that I am, but but who do you say that I am? And for the first time, the Apostle Peter spoke without putting his foot in his mouth. Peter must have wore peppermint socks because he loved the taste of his foot. And in that moment, he made this statement. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And with that statement that Peter made, Jesus takes that and gives us three declarations about his embassy, about the church. Let's notice those three declarations this morning as we study the Word. Notice, first of all, he makes a declaration about the origin of the church. Upon this rock I will build my church. Well, what is the rock? Who is the rock? Some say, well, that rock is Peter. Well, uh, if Peter is the foundation, that's a pretty shaky foundation. Peter oftentimes didn't know whether he was coming or going. Quite honestly, he makes this divine statement, but just a few verses later in verse 23, he's making such a statement that Jesus looks at him and says, get thee behind me, Satan. It was not Peter whom Jesus is referring to as the rock. In fact, when you look at it grammatically in the original language, you're going to find when he says, upon this rock I will build my church, he's using that phrase in verse number 18, thou art Peter, to differentiate between who the rock would be. Uh, that name Peter means a small moving stone. It's the Greek word petros. But when you look at the word rock, you find that it's the Greek word petra, which is an unmovable, unchangeable stone. So I submit to you this morning that the church's foundation is not Peter, but in fact it is what Peter declared divinely and uncharacteristically. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. When you study that statement, you're going to find there's three aspects to the, to the origin of the church. First of all, the church in its origin is eternal. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. If Christ is the foundation of the church and Christ is eternal, so the church is eternal as well. Now understand, the church has a specific season, a specific age, a, a time of ministry. But before this world was formed, the church was found in Jesus Christ. 
We often misunderstand the importance of the differentiation between time and eternity. And quite honestly, it's a mystery to us. Paul acknowledged that in Ephesians 3 verse 9. He says, there's the fellowship of the mystery from which the beginning of the world hath been hid from God, by God. There are some things we do not understand, but we can know this, that the church is eternal in origin. But not only is the church eternal in origin, secondly, it is historical in origin. You remember what happened there on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit came down. Simon Peter preached the great Pentecostal sermon, and 3,000 souls were saved. And from that point on, you begin to read about the church. Only two times the word church is mentioned in the Gospels, in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. That's when Jesus refers to it. He refers to the establishment upon the rock, and then He gives the order of the church. If someone neglects the church, take the elders of the church, the leaders of the church, and make that matter right. Continue reading through Mark, continue reading through Luke, continue reading through John, and the word church is never mentioned. Ironically, the Gospel of Luke was written by Luke, but it was also the writer, he was also the writer of the book of Acts. And as soon as you come to the book of Acts chapter 2, the word church is mentioned in the context of the beginning. And in doing so, 20 times throughout the book of Acts, the church is referred to. There is a historical understanding the beginning of the church was in that moment. But not only is the church's origin eternal and the church's origin historical, the, the church's origin is local. Christ has established that the eternal historical church have localities as embassies representing the kingdom of heaven. And today, Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach is an embassy, an outpost of heaven that's been faithfully representing the Lord for 47 years. This church operates within the framework of this world while representing the values of heaven, the, the interest of, a, of God's kingdom. And, and when you leave this building today, you leave this building as ambassadors for Christ. We may say we've enjoyed the service, but quite honestly, the service is when you walk through the doors. We've enjoyed the worship this morning, but the service begins when we enter into the work that God calls us to do as ambassadors for Christ. He speaks of the declaration of the origin of the church. But secondly, he speaks a declaration concerning the ownership of the church. Look at verse number 18. And I say unto thee, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build, notice this, my church. Underline that, highlight that, star that, my church. A few years ago, God called me to Pensacola Christian College to serve in the position that I enjoy serving in today. For 23 years, I pastored the same church. I went there when I was 24 years of age, small nucleus of 60 people. And over those 23 years, we were able to see God bless. We went through three building programs, completely moved our property to a new campus. By the time I was leaving, there was over 650 to 750 in regular attendance. God blessed in a wonderful way. But God called me away from that ministry, recognizing it was time for me to, to move to another ministry to allow the ministry to continue on. But over and over again, Pastor Thompson, I hear from pastors make this statement, how could you leave your church? And I look at them and say, because it wasn't my church. It is Christ's church. And when Christ is the shepherd, 
He can call you away to another ministry. Now listen to me, the commitment is the same. I'm going to be honoring Christ in any calling that He gives. But wherever He places me, I am just a steward, I am not an owner. And as we gather in this place this morning, you may have an affinity to this place, and you say, this is my church, and that's wonderful. I don't diminish that. I hope you consider this your church home. But understand, in the authority, the leadership, the, 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 the leading of this church, it is not your place. It is the Lord's church. It's my church. Number one, that's my first thought. He is the Lord of the church. You see, the church is not a monarchy run by the pastor. The church is not an oligarchy that is run by a group of deacons or committees. The church is not even really a democracy run by the people. The church is a Christocracy. It is led, it is developed, it is grown by the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of the church. Secondly, He is the life of the church. You see, the Bible is referring to the, the church as the body of Christ, and if we're the body, Christ is the head. Now, I've noticed this. I, I'm not really a, a medical person, but I've noticed this. There are people who have lost limbs from their body, yet they live. There are some who have, who have no use of particular limbs in their body, but they live. But if you remove the head from the body, there is no longer life in the body. Can I have an amen right there? And when the church is removed from the head Jesus Christ, there ceases to be life within the church. And if Jesus is the owner of the church, He must be the Lord of the church, he must be the life of the church, but here's a third thought. He must be the love of the church. Jesus made this statement in John 15, verse number 13, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. He speaks of a sacrificial love. Paul writing to, about the establishment of the home, and he says to the husband, Husband, love your wife, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. There is a level of sacrifice in that, in that relationship to the one that you love. And if Jesus Christ is the owner of the church, He should be the love of the church. And that changes how we interrelate one with another. Aren't you glad Jesus Christ loves you the way you are? He doesn't keep you where you are. He grows you. He, he develops you. But He loves you where you are. And Jesus Christ loved you where you are and gave Himself for you. In my early years of pastoring, I had to learn this. There was just some church members that were hard to love. I'm sure you have none of those here, Pastor Thompson. Uh, my first Sunday as I pastored there in West Virginia, a man came to me, was already a member of the church. He shook my hand, and he looked me in the eye, and he said, I just want you to know, I'm glad that you're here, but I want you to know that my spiritual gift is the gift of criticism. <laughs> he was serious. I later learned not only was his spiritual gift the gift of criticism, his love language was the love language of complaining, because that's all he did. For the first years of my ministry, he did nothing but just nitpick me to death. He was a guy who was for nothing and against everything. On one occasion in a Wednesday night business meeting, he stood up and just literally railed on me in public. But, but in those moments, God was teaching me something. He was teaching me that this is His church. If He's the Lord, and He's the life, I need to show Him love. And that was hard. But I began praying for Him. I began praying, Lord, kill this man. <laughs> it's biblical. It's called imprecatory prayers. 
begin praying, Lord, help me to bridge the connection with Richard. Lord, help me to navigate this relationship. Help us to be able to, to bring together what you mean for this church to be. Every Sunday night after the, uh, before, the morning, uh, before the evening service, excuse me, after the morning service, he would come and tell me everything I had done wrong. I'd be usually after a, a prayer meeting together with staff, would be, be in my office, and he would come stand in my doorway and just, just rail on me. One particular Sunday evening, I remember, just got up and I walked out of my office, didn't respond to anything that he was saying. Walked down the long hallway, and my office was in the basement of our first church, and I, I began to walk up the, uh, the stairs. And as he was just standing at the bottom of the stairs, continuing to yip and yap like a little poodle, I turned around and I looked at him, and I had a Peter moment. It was a Peter moment like Peter had when he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I walked down, and I stood on the, the bottom stair of that stairwell, and I put my hand on Richard's shoulder. And I said, Richard, I want you to know something. I love you. And I'm praying for you every day. Now, I didn't tell him I was praying the Lord would kill him, but I was praying for him every day. And in that moment, I do not exaggerate when I say this. Our relationship changed. Over the coming weeks, he would come and sit in my office and say, Pastor, I want to tell you something. I went to university, to Christian University in Chattanooga for a semester. God called me to the ministry, and then I backslid. And ever since then, I've been the most miserable person. Pastor, I want to apologize for how I have acted towards you. And through a process of events, a relationship began to develop to the point when we moved our buildings, our campus, to another location approximately three minutes away. I put him on the building committee for the purpose of seeing that he had a place in the work of God. I've operated with this philosophy when it comes to leadership. I operate it with it particularly in ministry. Love people where they are, but lead them where they need to be. Isn't that what Jesus does? Can I have an amen right there? Love people where they are, but lead them where they need to be. And that is the work of the church. And in that we understand when Christ owns the church, it is not about the pastor. It is not about the membership. It is not about the denomination. It is about Christ himself. And if Christ can die for the church, we can live with the church. Love people where they are and lead them where they need to be. Well, here's the third point, the sweetest words, the final point, the sweetest words in any Baptist church. Not only the origin and the ownership, but the outcome of the church. Notice what Jesus says. Upon this rock, verse 18, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In that, he gives us a few thoughts. Number one, he speaks of the enemy of the church. He refers to the gates of hell. I can imagine as Jesus is speaking there at Caesarea Philippi, he points to the, the grotto where the, the, where the sacrifices to Pan would be offered. He said, all of the paganism, all of the worship of this unknown mythical God, all of the, the culture that surrounds this, it may feel as if it's overcoming us. But I assure you that the gates of hell will not prevail. And in the present age, the church is facing a relentless assault from the forces of darkness. 
Using cunning strategies and deceitful schemes, hell seeks to undermine and weaken and divide the body of Christ. The, the attack on the church is, is evident in the rising tide of secularism and moral relativism and spiritual apathy. It permeates throughout all of our culture. And the enemy orchestrates subtle temptations and distractions and doubts to, to erode, the, erode the faith of the believer and hinder the advancement of the kingdom of God. These turbulent times in which we live remind us that the gates of hell are real, but the enemy shall not prevail. He speaks of the enemy of the church, but then secondly, he speaks of the authority of the church. Look at verse 19. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Did you notice in verse number 19 he refers to keys. Not a single key, but the plural. Why plural? Because he referred to the plural gates. For every hellish gate there is a divine key that gives us authority to respond. For every action that the enemy takes in this culture against the kingdom of heaven, God gives us the authority through the key. And what does that key do? Those keys restrict whatever is bound in heaven, uh, bound on earth shall be bound in heaven. Those keys release whatsoever is loosed on earth shall be loosed in heaven. God gives us as the church the, the opportunity to exercise heaven's decision on His behalf in history's need. He's giving us the keys to the kingdom. I don't know about you, but there's times I lose my keys. Uh, this morning, I walked out of my hotel room and then I forgot that I needed a key for my rental car. I had to go back up to the top and get that. Have you noticed this? That anytime you lose your keys, you're not going to go anywhere. You're not even going to get in the door of the car. If you lose the key, you cease to function in the authority that they have, that you can drive that car, that you can use that car, that it's the means to get you where you need to be. Or maybe you're like me. You have a set of keys of 100 keys, but you only use two. And those other 98 keys, you don't even know what they go to. But you carry them around because, man, keys means you have authority. You can unlock doors. You just don't know which door it unlocks. I think the modern evangelical church is much like those two examples. The evangelical church has either misplaced the authority and quite honestly is not going anywhere. Or we've held on to the keys, but we don't even know what door it opens. The authority of the church. A few weeks back, I was preaching on a Sunday at a church just north of Charlotte, North Carolina. And on weekends, usually when I travel, I, I will fly in on a Saturday, preach on Sunday, and then fly out on the 5.30 a.m. flight uh, to get back to college to, to, to work. And on this particular occasion, the pastor was so gracious, he had a hotel where I was preaching, the town in which I was preaching, but then he got me a hotel right by the airport. And I'm gone just about every other weekend traveling, so quite honestly, sometimes travel is a little robotic. You just know how to get through TSA and with, with pre-check and get your luggage. I don't even carry luggage, or I don't even check luggage. I just carry it with me so that I can make sure I can get in and out quickly. 
On this one occasion, I, I, I drove my rental car to this hotel in the airport that, that was at the airport, and I, I just walked in. Usually you can pre-check in with the apps for either Hilton Honors or for Marriott Bonvoy. I, I, I'm just I'm, I'm doing things in routine. I go up to my room, and I, and, I, and I take the key out of my pocket, and I, and I stick it on that little magnetic strip that unlocks the door, and I, I, I stick that key on the door, and it's a little red strip that says that you're not getting in here. I try it again because you know it may work the second time. It just takes a little time for it to click in. I do it again. And, eh, little red strip. It's not getting anywhere. Well, I'm a man, so that means I have to do it a third time just to prove that it's right. Place it on there. Eh, it's not going to open. I grab my, my luggage and I, and I go back downstairs I speak to the man at the front desk, and I, I put the key down, and I, I'm, I'm a little irritated. My, my sanctification is being tested at this point. And I put the key down, and I said, that key doesn't work. And as nicely and as gently as he could, he looked at me, and he said, well, that's because that's a Marriott key, and you're at a Hilton Hampton Inn right now. <laughs> I'd left the key from the morning in my pocket. I didn't realize that I'd taken the wrong key out. And I, I use that as an illustration. Because far too many Christians and church members are mixing the kingdoms of this world with the kingdom of heaven. Reducing the authority that Christ has given to us. And it is only the church that has been given the authority to draw heaven into history and eternity into time, because the church is God's ambassadors and embassy in a foreign land. The enemy of the church, the authority of the church, but I want you to notice finally the victory of the church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Can I have an amen right there? It seems as if the battle is overwhelming. It seems as if the devil is winning. But I'm here to tell you, Christ is still Lord, and the church will prevail. If you know anything about the game of chess, you know it all comes down to when the king is on, on either side, can no longer move. And once the king is trapped, the winning side declares checkmate, and the game is over. There's a painting that once hung in the Louvre Museum in Paris. It's painted by Frederick Retsch. Its, an, it's a f official name is the Chess Players, but today it's known popularly as Checkmate. The painting depicts two chess players. One is Satan, who appears arrogantly confident. The other player is a man who looks forlorn. He's thinking if Satan wins, he wins the man's soul. The story goes like this, though. One day, the uh, chess grandmaster was touring the Louvre, looking at all the art, looking at the Mona Lisa, and he came to this particular piece of art, and as he, as he began to stare at it, he began to look at the chessboard. And as he, as he stared, he began to notice something surprising. He noticed that the typical interpretation of the painting, that the devil had, had the man in checkmate, he noticed that it was incorrect. 
Though the devil seemed to be the obvious victor, he, he was not winning. The, the man who, who thought he was losing was actually winning. According to the arrangement of the pieces on the chessboard, the, the king had one more move. And that fateful move would make him the winner of the game. The grandmaster called the curator of the museum, and he, and he said to him, either you need to change that picture or change its title. Because the man who is forlorn, looking as if he is defeated because of the opponent, is actually, even though he doesn't realize it yet, he has the opportunity to win because his king has one more move. And I'm here to remind you this morning, church, that often when we look at the world and we see the news and we read the papers, we begin to realize that this world is unmistakably in a mess. And when we consider that the church is often a casualty of the culture that is godless with, with war around the world and violence and pandemics and unemployment and struggling marriages and depression and isolation, all the things that can easily disillusion us, can easily dis bring us to despondency and defeat, when it looks as if we're a checkmate, we have no reason to fear. The game's not over because the king has one more move and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What you're doing this morning as you gather in this place is a reminder of the sovereign son of God, Christ, the son of the living God, upon the church, upon whom the church is built, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.